we'd like to welcome you to our first podcast for Sharing Air, Transdisciplinary Conversations to Keep Us Connected, where we reflect, we dig, we bridge, and we reconstruct our story around health and our humanity in the face of isolation. I am your co-host, Andy Vasco at Claremont Graduate University, and I'm joined by... Laurieann Farrell, also at Claremont Graduate University, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities. And I am Associate Provost and Director of the Transdisciplinary Studies Program. Today's show is going to be entitled, To Air is Human. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot about air in the upcoming podcasts, because when we were talking about a theme for the show, we thought, what better connects us than air? And what ironically is the thing that we're most afraid of right now, given that we're all living in a distancing and isolated space from each other. So what we want to do to talk about uh, our relationship with air and our relationship with our human connection and our relationship with health is approach a lot of the topics that we kind of have been leaving off into the, the, the ether of somebody else to think about rather than us. We want to we wanna dig into them and we want to reframe them so that we're living comfortably next to them and incorporating them into our lives. So this first show comes from our experiences of having to live with difficulty and complication and complexity and uncertainty. And it reminded me of the song, Que Sera Sera. I don't know, Lorianne, do you, do you remember the Doris Day version of this? When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what shall I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Yes. Yes, that song. And when when we'd be hearing from it's actually from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, right? The um, I don't remember. I didn't know it was like it's a suspenseful uh, sort of scary movie, um, uh, kind of a political thriller, and and then she sings this song in it, um, which is um, I think you know one of the really interesting ways of you know like what did you expect? We did not expect that song to be in that movie. I did not know it was from a thriller, but that makes it even more appropriate um, because it kind of is this, this point at which you throw up your hands and you say with like a, a smile on your face and, you know, your, your full on June Cleaver moment of like, yeah, we can't control things. And it's, it's really something that I've heard people say to me over and over throughout my life that I've always been a little annoyed with when people say it to me. But there's also a lot of truth in it. And I think that the, the apposition of that with, with something that's thrilling is, is kind of funny. I bet we're about to do exactly the same thing. Um, I don't, this morning, there was an interview with, with Dr. Sarah Cody, who's the chief health officer at Santa Clara County. Um, and it was a set of, it was, it was, it's a, it's a written interview in the New York times kind of California edition. Um, and you could tell that the questions were getting more and more frantic with her. Like, but can you tell us how long it will be? Can you tell us what we really need to do? Can you tell us that face masks can work? Can you tell us what, what we can, you know, like, if we'll be able to get back together in the fall. And even the, even the questions on the page felt to me like they were pelting her and they were increasingly frightened. And, um, so the final question from the from this person was, so we can't plan? And her answer was, and I love this, we just need to take a very deep breath. <laughs> and I thought that is perfect for what we're talking about today. You know, we're, you know, do the thing that you're most afraid of. Um, right now, deep breaths are actually a, can feel like a dangerous thing or a diagnostic test. Um, but that's the case or aspect of it. How many of us living an adult life are comfortable saying, I'm not sure this is going to be true even tomorrow. You know, the there's now a CDC recommendation for taking a deep breath that I saw this morning, that it's it's gone to this level of something that your mother told you um, or that your friends told you throughout you growing up, that you can take a, just a deep breath and it'll be okay. And it it actually holds true, but now we need a more official version of, of that. Right. We need a kind of um, a meditator in chief or something like that. <laughs> and I also think, I mean, it is usually part of a way of thinking about um, air as the thing which revives and, and um, makes us healthy. And we're actually afraid of shared air right now. Um, we're afraid to fill each other's spaces and breathe, which is what all this face mask stuff is all about. Um, and if, Breathing deeply is supposed to be calming. Um, right now, it is anything but right. 
for a while it was a it was a test, wasn't it? If you could deep if you could take a deep breath for ten seconds, it would mean you were well. Well, what if you're having a panic attack? Uh, what if uh, you've got allergies? What if you're? I mean, in other words, I'm not sure. You know, the, the notion of a deep breath as a as a um, as a cure all is being put to the test right now. I don't believe I have been ordered as many times as I have in the last five years just to take a breath. Right. There's now, you know, like podcasts about breathing. Um, I guess this is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sounds true. It's just sent me another link to something about with Tara Brock about, you know, learning how to meditate. It starts with your breath. Everything starts with the breath. Um, and now we're kind of in this, uh, might, everything might start with the breath, but right now we're kind of afraid that everything's going to end with the breath, which is, you know, one very, very succinct description of human existence. No, it's absolutely, it begins and ends with, with, with that breath. And I think that the, the conversations we're having around air and breathing are, are the things that are dominating everything related to our living in isolation from each other. The ideas of quarantining and the ideas of, of where, I mean, we've seen this all this week, the conversation about masks, uh, which brings up th this other point of whether or not the air that we're breathing outside. I see people walking by my window sometimes who are nonchalant, family of four. They're all happily walking their dog together. And there's clearly there's a unit to them, even if they're distanced a little bit. And then I'll also see people two minutes later wearing a full N95 mask with a face shield over them while they're, while they're just going out for an afternoon stroll. So there's very different concepts of how one is interacting with this environment of, of what the air is looking like to them or what it's feeling like and what kind of threat it poses. And I think a lot of this comes from the uncertainty of what the air actually holds. And it's this space that's both necessary and a possible threat at the same time because we don't know. And our, our way of dealing with the uncertainty is scary. And it's better to be safe than sorry. I understand that, but it's air. There's, there's a point at which we have to understand air is air. We need it. It's it's a part of our lives. And when when we don't trust the air, then who are we as people? How do we how do we cope with something like that? How do we hold on to um, the need to both breathe? Well, and as and had, and to protect we should be long used to the fact that we have a very very complicated relationship with the air. Um, you know, when I first moved here, you couldn't see the mountains behind my house in the summertime. You, I was very surprised. I moved here in late summer. I didn't know that we actually had Mount Baldy until November. I think there's a, there's a special kind of anxiety that underlaces our relationship to the air here. You know, we have air quality management. Uh, we are the, we're the, you know, the, the land of Priuses. Um, it's, so it's that part to me, um, it's very hard to switch gears and, uh, now figure out that there's a there's a there's a different quality to the air, a quality of almost that's that's it's it's heavier in a certain way. I mean, all the the talk of air droplet nuclei and how long they linger before they fall to the ground. I mean, you know, the, the sense of it it feels very material um, in a way that we haven't talked about smog for a while. But I want to get back to face masks because one of the things I think is interesting about face masks is that they were first they were completely off the table in this kind of long you know a few weeks ago. Um, in this kind of long conversation about the fact that this was a disease that was transmitted by touch. Um, and so you had to wash your hands, which is still a great, is, is a great thing to do. So I'm, I'm not advocating that we stop, but it was all about hand washing and it was all about, you know, forget masks. They're a kind of weird kind of protection theater, kind of control theater. We don't do that. You know, make sure you wash your hands, make sure you've got Purell. That's why we don't have any Purell left in the stores. And then the face masks, uh, sort of directives have gotten stronger and stronger and stronger until we are where we are right for all I know, because things change so quickly in the time it took for us to figure out how to actually run this podcast. They finally made an announcement that we all have to wear masks, but I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Andy, but there's a, a really um, kind of misleading or kind of confusing way in which they present this. And I actually went through a bunch of stuff today because I was sure that in these frantic times, I was simply misreading. Um, the mask is for you to, to, you know, the mask is to keep you from hurting other people, from you from breathing onto other people. So that's why for a while the mask directive was just about um, just wear your mask if you don't feel well, wear your mask if you have a cough. Now the presentation is wear your mask to protect yourself. But that's slightly inaccurate. You're still protecting others with the mask. And I think it's interesting to 
ponder whether or not we're saying it this way now because Americans may not be as concerned about protecting others as they might be about protecting themselves, or if this is just an interesting way of saying it. But for me, yesterday, okay, so yesterday I go, this is where I get to tell a personal anecdote um, of which I have millions. Um, I went to the store for the first time in three weeks. Andy knows my anxiety about going to the store. And it was, you know, I wanted to go to Trader Joe's, but that was not possible because the line waiting to get in was too long. So I went somewhere else and I didn't, I don't have a mask. I don't own any paper masks. I've never worn one in my life since I was a nurse. And that's another story about my past we might get into. But um, I have this, like this bandana type thing that I bought at Disneyland that's covered with Mickey Mouse figures on it. And I wrapped it around my face to go into Sprouts, this healthy, organic grocery store, um, feeling like an idiot and also feeling like I could not breathe anymore because I had this thing over my face, which was something that did remind me about the times when I was a nurse and couldn't breathe anymore. I couldn't stand being in protective gear for the same reason, feel very choky. Um, plus, I felt not everybody in there had one on. And I, I do, I think there is something to saying either we're all going to wear them or we're not. I mean, because... I felt like I looked like someone who had left the magic kingdom to go and hold up sprouts. Like I walked with this thing over my face and other people were looking at me and I couldn't tell if they were looking at me because they thought, are you sick? You know, or like, is that Mickey mouse or, um, lady that just doesn't work for you. It's not a good fashion choice. Um, whatever it was, the awkwardness of being in public with people and having part of my face covered, um, I'm afraid I'm going to go off on another tangent, kind of stop myself, because right now what I'm thinking about is the huge argument about women wearing veils not too long ago, because, you know, part of it being about public safety and being able to see their face. But you couldn't see my face yesterday. Um, I went into to Sprouts in a furtive and terrified way. Um, I picked up some things and ran out of there like the devil himself was at my heels um, and, you know, felt like this was not a great outing for my first day with a face covering on. Yeah, it gets it gets better. By the way, <laughs> I will tell you for somebody when he does go grocery shopping, does wear a mask or some kind of protective. I actually now have different things, so I, I will wear certain patterns of scarf or bandana when I feel like it's low risk and I think it's more of a fashion accessory, which does happen throughout history when something starts off as being protective and turns into a social statement. So I'm I'm looking forward to when this becomes more of a. Of, of an aesthetic preference. Oh, okay. Venice, you know, Venice, they have these masks on. You look like giant bird beaks. That's right. right. You see that's those? Right. those are the great yep. signs. Yep. And that's when they were wrong about how this particular disease was spread, right? So if you're any child that remembers any, any Western Civ class, you know, will remember that, you know, you were taught that everybody thought that, that the plague was born by airborne, you know, molecules. And so you wore these weird masks and things, but actually it was rats. And it was completely yeah. different. It was carried in a completely different way. Now we, you know, now we, now we have to actually readjust it. it. It's, it's until we find out it is, it's not rats. It's actually is the air. Well, this is where I think the point of masks is so relevant and important to look at not just what we're being told by CDC or the Surgeon General or by any one person, but to really be looking at this from different perspectives at the same time. So I don't know if, you know, in, in that era of the plague, when they were talking about whether or not it was airborne, there's a very long historical argument that had been going on whether or not disease was something that was spread, quote, airborne, or if it was spread through contagion. It was actually like the germ theory of disease. Mm -hmm. And so the airborne is the, the miasma theory of, of disease was that yes. you had the clouds outside of, of, of putrid something or another that were causing disease. It was inorganic in nature and you needed to stay away from that. And it makes sense to wear a face shield and an N95 mask outside if you have swamp gas outside that's causing, that's causing anything. But then there's this term airborne that was medicalized around 100 years ago. Um, not quite 100 years ago, but it was it was it was a while ago, so that they could discern airborne in a scientific sense to refer to the amount of size of, of of aerosol droplet in the air or droplet, which has got its own definition of mm -hmm. something that's heavy enough to fall to the ground and stick on a surface. When there were claims made of something being airborne or droplet based, there's some doublespeak going on. There's when you say it's not airborne, part of what you're saying is it's not it's not part of a swamp gas cloud. Um, and we don't know mm -hmm. much that's actually swamp gas cloud that, that's going to spread that way. There are things that are highly volatile and can be in the air. But by and large, we don't know what's in, wh how this is spread 
when the droplets are small, how long they can stick around for in the air. And there is some data on there. And I can go back to some studies that people have looked on in Wuhan. There are some studies when SARS was just SARS, not the COVID version that we're dealing with now, uh, 19. But we have our historical prejudice and, and the need to dissociate contagion from miasma into our current understanding of what something means to be airborne. And it's very much coloring I can see how we're handling what a face mask is. And instead of being able to, to kind of take in this whole story of this is an artifact of our understanding of what airborne means and that the definition was taken away from us. And so our idea of airborne is actually our, our very colloquial version when the medicalized version that's coming from another office is, is a much more medical version. Um, that we're speaking two different languages here that history has a, a really prominent point in. And that's been tough for us to yeah. contend with. And we're depending on other people to tell us what to listen to. Yes. And I think also, I mean, before we, I think that, that that's a really important point about who to listen to, which is another way of actually sharing the air, or at least letting the air around your ears get ruffled up as much as anywhere else. But I think one of the things I wanted to say is this idea of miasma as well, and historically, it is also about um, the something which is is has a noxious smell, right? So it gets associated with with neighborhoods and places that are that could be dirtier or could be um, the sites of certain kinds of manufacturing that's actually um, got you know is, is more smelly, and and it reminds me that um, that this these kinds of all these kinds of diseases also can you know or these these concerns I should say like like crises that rise up around the fear of public contagion also rise up around the fear of say poor neighborhoods or less well-maintained neighborhoods or less well-maintained people or less well, you know, the idea that this is a kind of dirtiness out of control or a kind of um, overwhelming odor, uh, uh, you know, badly, you know, sort of associated uh, uh, with, with, with a kind of malefaction. And, um, I was actually thinking about this because one of the things I was, you know, in preparation for this podcast, um, you know, while you've been reading medical journals, I've been trying to remember my Latin. Um, and um, I was thinking about the, there's a, it's a motto that gets cut into Renaissance knot gardens all the time. Uh, trust me, I'm going somewhere that's actually useful with this. And it's a famous motto. It's often, you can also find it on, on armorials and it's um, cum spiro spero. Um and uh, that means actually the, the popular meaning of that, or if you're going to be translating it, you know, to, to in the most elegant way, it would be with uh, life, there is hope. But Spiro, S-P-I-R-O, is actually, it actually means with breath, there is hope. Um, and that also could mean if you were a bad tr translator of Latin, like I was when I first started and still continue to be, um, and just looking it up frantically in your Latin uh, dictionary, it can mean with a smell, there is hope. You know, in other words, so spiro can mean breath, it can mean smelling, and it or it can mean a kind of um, animation. And those, I you know, like I, I you know, that's why I love that this word torn apart really was interesting to me to think about because we really the the problem here is partly that we are concerned about the air. But we don't, we, we can't see what's in it, right? So we have to smell it or we have to, you know, or as, as, as a friend of mine says, when she moved to Southern California, I don't trust any air I can't see. It's a good thing I live in Los Angeles. Um, but it is, it, you know, it's how do, we, how do we imbue this? What's something that's supposed to be clear? How do we imbue it with an understanding of what it does and what it carries um, and what it means, you know, the, the notion of miasma to my mind in the, in the past is all connected up to all the things in the dark and all the things that can come out of nowhere and frighten you that you don't see coming. Um, and, uh, now we're actually, you know, we know that there's stuff in the air, right? And that idea of miasma is, I'm so glad you put it in those terms. It, it is kind of the, it describes the feeling that we have in times of real uncertainty, even though contagion might be the mechanism by which things spread. And so 
to discredit one and remove something like miasma from our, our thoughts of, of what the experience or the phenomenology of, of what we're all living through is like makes it difficult for us to contend and not let it seep back into our consciousness and integrate into how we're interpreting contagion. And I think that when we have this kind of confusion, when we're having differing sources of knowledge or the same source of knowledge telling us different things depending on what day of the week it is, it's really hard for us to know, especially in a specialized world, who to trust and what to do, which speaks back to that press conference you were referring to this morning um, where in, in Santa Clara County, where it was, what should we do? Where it, it almost sounds like someone... Uh, trying to tread water unsuccessfully after they've been thrown into the deep end. They're just trying to find something to hold on to, to, to um, be stabilizing. And one of the things I, I think is really important to think about in times like now, that um, instability is actually a reality. And a lot of the practices that have us focus on our breathing are having us focus on our breathing to become more comfortable in instability. It's okay to be in an unstable place. And that is actually, a, that is a guarantee of being alive, that there are times that are unstable. And um, the want to control is quite strong. But then as, as was, was said, you know, the virus is kind of running the game right now of what its course is going to be more than us having that kind of control. So we have to take that, that factoid into our consciousness at the same time. There was another article, and I, I really like reading The Atlantic about this. There was one that came out on face masks this week. There was another one that came out that said, essentially, all models are supposed to be wrong. And it referred back to the numbers that had been projected of the mortality rate and the infection rate of people in the UK from the National Health Service, where the numbers were, I mean, they were abysmal. There was millions of people were going to be afflicted and possibly die from this. And then the updated numbers were that it was orders of magnitude lower, like way lower. And the title of the article is something along the lines of models are supposed to be wrong. They're supposed to be. They're supposed to give you the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. And rarely does, does, does something happen in one of those two poles. So they're supposed to be wrong. But given that there's a worst case and a best case scenario for something, um, it's our responsibility to understand how to interpret that data and integrate that truth into everything else that we know. So to understand one possibility and another, is it's really hard. Yes, I was going to say, you know, one of the things that this, what strikes me right now that you that you speak to, besides the fact that, yes, of course, you're an Atlantic reader. You're one of those East Coast kind of people. Um, but. But away from that, um, I'm thinking about the, the fact that we get, a, you know, one of the things that uh, we want to pride ourselves on is this this notion that we can trust science and we trust medicine, right? Right now, that's actually one of the calls. Let, let us trust science in this. Let us trust, trust medicine in this. So it is extremely um, uh, discombobulating to be reminded that science and models and doctors are also working to figure out something and they don't know yet. Okay, so that plays into what is often, um, I think, presented in very crude ways in um, in in media, things like that. About you know, like either you you know, do you trust science or do you not trust science? It can be sometimes put together as a very you know sort of like science versus religion or science versus faith or or you know science versus um, you know Godzilla. But whatever it is, I think what's what's what we're being asked right now to do is both trust science, trust medicine, but we're trusting them to continue to work towards understanding. And what we want from science and medicine is, is we want to be told the way things are now and we want it fixed. Um, and what I thought, I find it poignant. Um, and, and, and I mean, in, you know, here I speak as a, you know, I mean, as I, you know, as I would speak for us all, I mean, as a, you know, this is, this is a humanist problem. It is poignant to realize that we are right now being um, assailed by something which we do not understand and which we have not yet been able to take the measure of. It has, you know, it, it, to be, you know, to, to, to kind of poorly anthropomorphize a, a, a virus, it has the measure of us right now. We don't have the measure of it. 
right? Which is mm -hmm. kind of like the basis for every science fiction movie ever. Um, but we asked these doctors, I mean, I'm beginning, I mean, poor old Anthony Fauci. I mean, my God, every single day he's got to get up there and say something that's both right and accurate. And, um, and, and often he needs to be speaking, you know, in medias race. I mean, he can't, he can't, he's not, we don't know yet. Um, so how do we actually reconcile? It'll bring this back to a question because you can answer these kind of questions so well, Andy, but you know, how do we trust these, these, um, institutions, I guess we call them, or, 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 you know, these, how do we trust scientists? How do we trust, uh, people who work in labs, researchers, how do we trust doctors when they can't tell us what we think we need to hear right now? Well, we absolutely need to hear, which is we know what this is. We have a way to cure it. And this is kind of the, this is kind of, it's like, um, you know, the modern, the modern tragedy is that we actually now believe that these things can happen and we're so disappointed or so terrified when they don't work out. I mean, my, my bias in this is that this is, what we're, what we're seeing here is an illustration of, of too much specialization without enough integration. And so I, I depend a lot, and I'm thankful a lot, and I'll let you speak for this in your own experience, but I know that you have this, this kind of varied background also. Like, I was trained to some extent in the humanities, and I was also trained to a larger extent in the biomedical sciences. And so when I... I'm confronted with these things, I might still listen only to the Surgeon General or to the CDC as my first line of defense, but I have a voice that comes inside of me that's like, wait a minute, something's, something's not sitting right. I'm capable of understanding data in a really rigorous way. This is how I was trained to do this, that I can incorporate both of these things into an understanding for myself. And teaching in medical education for a while, along with teaching in liberal arts and understanding that integration has been something I've relied on quite a bit to give me peace of mind and feel like I'm making decisions for myself that I'm comfortable with. I'm totally curious on hearing how your experience, I mean, as you said, you were a nurse, you're trained in the medical sciences. You also are a Shakespeare scholar, a historian. You understand, I mean, histories of plagues. You, you have a lot of these different things. And I, it always drives me nuts when people just call it lenses, because lenses at an optometrist are things that you can flip on and flip off and they change. But they're not things that are parametric in how you actually uh, integrate them into yourself. Something doesn't just switch and then you, you compartmentalize that lens into something. There's an integration point. And I'm very curious in how you integrate the uncertainties and the different truths that have to coexist at the same time as this being both a human problem and a non-human problem at the same time. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a small question. Andy. Yeah, I like Gosh. small um, questions. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. You yeah, you're because you're the integrator, right? Um, well, it, you know, it's funny as you know, as you were as 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 I was listening to you, I was thinking that um, one of the first things that you the first thing that you learn as a nurse, um, and it was a very long time ago that I was a nurse. Uh, the first thing you learn as a nurse is the limits of your own of your own abilities. People put a lot of trust in you, um, and you can't make the pain go away, and you can't. You can't change the diagnosis. And often what you have to do or say is really, really, I mean, literally hurtful. Um, and that was something that I first, we, I think we took on in nursing education that that was our, our place was to be that kind of human carrier between like the great all knowing doctor, the med, you know, the medical doctor. And then we kind of bridge the gap between that presence, right? I, I, I did my training and I did my, I did my, my first, my first work in university hospitals. And th that's, it's particularly clear there that this is a, you know, there's, this is a space where medical research goes on and the doctor uh, is, um, is in many ways unapproachable. And if it, it, so the nurses were actually supposed to humanize the experience. And so humanizing experience um, turned out to always feel like to me that we were the, you know, the bearers of bad tidings and, and the, the holders of things that hurt, you know, needles and other things. Um, yeah, but the amaze, the amazement to me over, over the years of getting around that was to realize that, you know, believe it or not, doctors are human too. And I think now that's actually, you know, doctors are, are, are humanized to a great extent. I mean, you know, we have lots of doctors that are writing in the, in, in, you know, in, in forms that I find are, you know, intensely humanist and almost novelistic, 
um, or literally novelistic. And they're, they're, um, they're really giving us an insight into something that I think we, we had left as a shadowy mystery that they really held some ways, the mysteries of life and death. Um, work long enough um, on any floor of a hospital with any number of doctors, both bad and good. Um, and I worked with almost entirely good ones. And I never worked with any that were careless or dangerous. And yet we made mistakes all the time and they often didn't know. And there was a kind of this extraordinary moment where I was sitting, I was, I was actually with a, a neurosurgeon um, and said something, I don't know what it was though, you know, the kind of thing you say in the middle of the night when you're both tired, you know, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do next? And he said, well, I always tell people, this was this back in the eighties. I always tell people that being a, being a, um, a, you know, a neurologist or a neurosurgeon means that you understand about 5% of what you're working on at any given time. We just don't know. Lorianne, we just don't know. Um, which in this particular setting was not comforting. It was because we were really flailing to help somebody. Um, so I think, I think what you ask is how one finds, how one reconciles the very human nature of these endeavors. I mean, it's not as if science is being, you know, performed by something called a scientist, which is not a human being. Um, part of it is being able to work in both that, you know, the unknowing and then to watch out for the hubris after the knowing. I mean, so you can fix something and it doesn't last, right? That'd be a little bit like, you know, me, you know, or like my car mechanic or something. Um, you can identify something and turn out it can it can change shape. Um, and the very best doctors um, and the very best nurses and the very best people in the in the medical fields altogether, I think, actually have a sense of that protean aspect of dealing with the human condition, which is one of you know of being born to eventually someday die. Um, how you know, and to be constantly um, presented with the mysteries of existence at a level that, you know, that people expect you to be able to handle, um, not spiritually, but in some kind of material, um, interventionist way. Uh, so I feel like I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but these, when you ask about my nursing experiences, they feel rambly to me because they were never definite, right? The only thing definite about being a nurse on a shift is that it starts at seven o'clock and it ends at three or it starts at three and it ends at 11, but the work doesn't end. Like you basically just sort of pass off to each other and everything is in flux. And um, so the, the final thing I'll say that, you know, kind of close this little, this little uh, ramble off would be um, I eventually, I found out very quickly on that I wanted to work the evening shift um, because the evening shift at least had a semblance of trying to put some people to bed. The mm -hmm. worst for me was either a shift that ended in the middle of the afternoon be, well, that was actually absolutely the worst, which was the shift that everybody, everybody wants day shift, except I couldn't stand it because at three o'clock in the afternoon, nothing had been fixed. People were still on the, people were still sick. The medicine hadn't kicked in yet. We still didn't have that order yet. We weren't, you know, we didn't have the answers. This person was now going back down for emergency surgery. I couldn't stand leaving the place in chaos. Um, and that's actually basically nothing is resolved at the end of any shift at, at, at any hospital. Um, and that state of resolution is only very, very um, uh, gently achieved when someone gets to go home or we call somebody well, right? I mean, right now we're saying, well, we don't know if you get well, will you be immune to COVID-19 or, or, you know, can you be a carrier or how bad is it, you know, how, how bad can it get? Or, you know, we, we take refuge in um, truisms like, well, if you're, you know, it's, it's only a danger for people over the age of 60, which already terrifies me. Um, but now, you know, I notice now the news reports is always like, and that person was 19, as if it's, you know, like, that's really a terrifying fact, as if we ever knew that we could actually draw um, any kind of boundaries around what this thing could do. Um, and when we finally can, it will mutate and it'll become something else and we'll have something else to work on. I, that sounded really gloomy. Um, it it sounded what, a little gloomy. Think. But I think there is some, I, I think there's more good in this than we've revealed so far. And I, I think we're going to work our way to getting to what some of those those are. Like, I, I at first, you know, I think we've all gone through a series of emotions and we're going to continue to go through a series of emotions living in these times of duress because it is stressful, admittedly. Um, I have had, 
I've had breathing problems that have been associated with anxiety and panic that have come with this. So I understand the importance of air. And for somebody who claims to, you know, have have an understanding of something, I've really also been at at the whim of of all of the factors that are external to me. And I've not really had a lot of confidence at many points in this process. And I think that's very normal. And, and I'm now at a point where I'm more comfortable saying that. Um, I think in those times, I found there, there are things that bring me back to center. Um, some of them are taking a, de- a deep breath. Some of them are watching YouTube videos of people making ceramics, because I find that very calming. Uh, something I've found myself doing a lot lately is that whenever I'm on Netflix, I want to see if the top 10 things that people are watching are related to what's going on in the world right now. Um, there was, uh, at, at the earlier stages of this, they were all the very terrible, like, contagion, pandemic, everything, everything that sounds in, in the, the thriller kind of way of this being presented, um, kind of like the way people watch horror movies, I believe, to kind of take the edge off the fear of, of the horror itself. And then you see some of these deeper movies like Platform has recently been there, which is, is a critique on, on capitalist systems that are also being magnified right now um, in, in the current state. Um, I've been following much more medical history podcasts and, and books and journals. I'm very, very interested in all these things. I'm trying to intellectualize it to, for it to make more sense. And I think everybody's got their their own system. My friend Heather just told us the other day that she was watching White Christmas because <laughs> that's a movie that makes her feel better. We, yeah, we all, we all have... We all have, but then I came across a number of writings on the plague that have come out around now. Camus, the plague, um, and that to me was really profound. There's a there's a really cool journal that also has a blog associated with it that's called the Hedgehog. And if you've ever heard me talk about the the importance of hedgehogs, and they're considered the generalists. And there's there's an essayist in there named named John Rosenthal who was writing on the relevance of of Camus and the plague and now. And this is what really got me thinking about uncertainty. And his description of, of the book was uh, of the narrator's role. He said he was a man who understood that even to be a normal person in normal times is a difficult proposition. How then to be so under the conditions of the plague, of exile, sudden deprivation, random suffering, and even more random death? How do humans, all kinds of them, act under such conditions, and what are our responsibilities in a world seemingly forgotten by God to ourselves, to family, to community? And that to me is where I was starting to understand why I'm turning to literature and the arts and other things that I might have dismissed as distractions before, but really realizing that they helped me understand my humanity more. And it made me dig deeper into the idea of what it means to be around and contending with this. So when it, the terms random that came up, uh, uh, random suffering and random death, really, really resonated with me. They resonated with the idea of uncertainty for me and the feelings that I have. And it brought me back to a place that we look at in complex systems and in even transdisciplinary study of this concept of chaos, which, like the idea of airborne, has its disciplinary definition and then it has its colloquial definition. And colloquially, I would say we're very much in chaos right now. I don't know if you feel the same way, Laurieanne. It's interesting to think about what it is that we turn to, and, you know, and whether we can find ways to order. Um, but when I when I was thinking about what we'd talk about today, and then you prompted me about Shakespeare, and I, I ignored that for a minute. Um, I was thinking about a couple of things that have been really helpful to me, which are, are not they, they're not as learned, but but they but they work at a different. I think they they work at a different level, and of course. I'm, I'm going to say poetry, but I'm going to start with Shakespeare because um, um, and another thing I've done um, in, in a checkered past is that I took a, a six weeks. Um, I worked with the Theatricum Botanicum and, and learned Shakespeare acting. I decided that I couldn't teach it if I didn't understand what it was like to try to do it. Um, and it's a good thing I didn't give up my day job, but I did take a series of, of pretty intense acting classes. And um, actors have a really interesting relationship to text. They, um, they because they have to they have to actually embody it and and I realized that they that the actors that I was working with people I have tremendous respect for now um, had a very uh, a very sincere explanation a very a very deeply felt and a very very um, intellectual uh, um, approach to Shakespeare's punctuation um, full stops commas um, 
and the like, um, that I had never, you know, you'd never teach this in a class on Shakespeare. They believed that, that the first folio contained within it the punctuation that was meant to reflect when an actor paused to take a breath or made a move. Um, and when they first told me this, I said, well, that's just malarkey, because, of course, I was bringing, you know, a different kind of approach to Shakespeare in, onto the stage, uh, which will also explain why I am not a good actor. Um, but, uh, you know, it works for them. And but what they're basically saying is that, you know, the, the theory of punctuation works especially strongly in things like poetic work and things like the drama, because they force you to stop and breathe. They force you to cut cut your line where you do for the, the kind of effect that you need to make. Um, and so one of the things that I've been doing because to stay kind of sane in chaotic times and to remind myself that the world can still be measured um, is that there's a daily, um, there's a uh, Patrick Stewart's uh, Instagram page. He reads a Shakespeare sonnet every day. Um, and the man is a sheer pleasure to listen oh, yeah. to how he reads. And he also, it's when you realize that poetry possibly, you know, more than any other art form really requires the thought of breath to work. It requires the notion of, that's why it's, it's lines do what they do. They often stop where you don't expect them to. The punctuation makes every, every difference in the world. Um, and, um, so watching him read sonnets, which is, you know, which is just terrific. And I'm so sorry that I don't, don't think about that every day before this ever happens. So that's actually, you know, that's an optimistic look at what this has done. Um, also made me think about poetry differently. It made me realize that poetry is about controlling a breath in a way that makes sure that you get the most air possible, if that makes any sense. Um, and I, I turn to, can, can you let me read a poem? Or is I it can let, time? You can do anything. Yeah, this is our conversation. Yeah. Well, I, so I was thinking about like what, what poem works most for me um, when I'm thinking about control and when I'm thinking about measuredness, and I'm thinking about how one gets through a line or a day or a thought. Um, and I, the one I came up with is not, I mean, this is one of my favorite poems in the world. And I first looked, looked at it and thought, this is not going to have anything to do with what we talk about, with, with what Andy and I talk about today, but I still want to read it because I think it absolutely does. Um, because the way that that poetry helps to measure and 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 um, and make sense of the world is very oblique. It 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 is not it's not an obvious relationship. It is in the working out of that space that you figured out. So this is my actually one of my top ten favorite poems. Um, it's modern. It's by Heather McHugh, and it's called "The Size of Spokane." Um, and I'll start it now. The baby isn't cute. In fact, he's a homely, little, pale, and headlong stumbler. Still, he's one of us, the human beings stuck on Flight 295, Chicago to Spokane. And when he passes my seat twice at full tilt, this than that direction, I look down from Lethal Weapon 3 to see just why. He's running back and forth across a sun-blazed circle on the, on the carpet. Something brilliant, fallen from a porthole, so, it's light amazing him. It's only light, despite some three and one half hundred people propped in rows for him to wonder at. It's light he can't get over, light he can't investigate enough, however many zones he runs across it, flickering himself. The umpteenth time I see him coming, I've had just about enough. But then he notices me noticing and stops, one fat hand on my armrest, to inspect the oddities of me. Some people cannot hear. Some people cannot walk. But everyone was sunstruck once and set adrift. Have we forgotten how astonishing this is? So practiced all our senses, we cannot imagine them? Foreseen instead of seeing all the all there is? Each spectral port, each human eye, is shot through with a hole, and everything we know goes in there, where it feeds a blaze. In a flash, the baby's old. Mel Gibson's hundredth comeback seems less clever. All his chases and embraces narrow down while we fly on in our plain radiance of vehicle toward what cannot stay small forever. I think that is 
an awesome poem. I loved that. I just closed my eyes and imagined that very, very clearly. And it so does relate for me, at least, to this time that we're living in, of, of noticing all that there is to marvel at and be grateful for, and the new landscapes that we're kind of seeing the world in. I mean, even the sky is so much bluer right now. The trees are so much more rustly right now. There are so many amazing things to experience that that poem just helps remind me of that. I really appreciated that, Lori, and I thought that was beautiful. I'm, you know, I thought about first, I thought, well, you know, you're just gonna have to make some kind of dumb argument about it's about being in the air, right? But I actually think where it really, especially with the way you didn't even know you were setting it up since you didn't know I was going to do that. No, um, I didn't. Because I didn't get around to sending you the poem. It's a big surprise. It was a surprise for you, Andy. Um, was, um, you know, for years, I mean, the humanity of that poem to me is about us living in bodies that are the plain radiance of our, of our, of our vehicle, right? So that's the way I've always done the sort of metaphoric study of that or thought about that. And, but there's also these kind of stops and starts in the poem that reminded me of the way one needs to use breath. If I don't read that poem properly, I will actually run out of breath and, and miss, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. a, a word I really need to, to hit on. But in the end, what's most extraordinary about it, I think, is that it is a description of human life amidst what we may see as chaos, but we simply are not, you know, always privileged to know everything going on. And that is that final line about us um, flying on toward what cannot stay small forever. Right. Mm-hmm. At one level, it's just a description of how it feels to land, you know, from Chicago to Spokane, as you start, as you start moving into land, you know, things get closer and closer and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, um, and, and our senses all get rather turned awry, but, um, I now realize that that's, you know, that of course it being Heather McEwen, she's a genius. It's about the fact that we are all moving headlong into what cannot stay small. Um, that is one really extraordinary description of life. Um, and this thing is just getting bigger, right? We want to know when it's going to end, but actually all we can do is just, you know, keep flying on in our, in our, in our little plain radiant vehicle, right? And and I think that really ties into the chaos idea, too, because in a lot of ways, when you're the baby, um, life is much more chaotic. Your brain is much more chaotic. The, the connections that you're using to make sense of the world are in stark contrast to the person watching Lethal Weapon 3, even in the mention of Mel Gibson's 100th comeback later on. So you've got chaos against order. And we're striving all the time for order. We want to see another Mel Gibson comeback. And at the same time, that's clearly not beautiful. It's clearly not the transformative piece in this experience. It's the person experiencing for the first time in an unknown, in an unpredictable way, what it means to witness light and another human being witnessing them witnessing light. And I think that's one of the big things that I've been trying to process is there are changes that happen with chaos and there chaos is always here in some form or another like that's that's a truth that we we try to willfully neglect um it's always in the background but in biology it's a very it serves many important functions so if we were in a very very ordered space all the time if our heart was so ordered if our muscles were so ordered if our neurons were so ordered we could never adapt to a changing environment because we would only have one function and we'd only be doing one thing and so having a chaotic background which sometimes comes forth and really forces us to deal with what's new creates a complete transformation in the structure of our brain or in the functioning of our heart or the ability of us to incorporate something in the environment that that is really different and i think that that poem it kind of sets it apart through age in a very similar way the nascency is a more chaotic time and and you know later in life is a, is seemingly more ordered but there's also some there's this capacity for beauty to exist in this as well. And so we're starting to see some things, if we're paying attention to the light, that are opportunities for real transformation. And that I find really exciting amidst all of the discomfort and isolation and disconnection that we could otherwise be feeling. We're seeing what it's like. We're we're calling people we haven't talked to in a very long time. My my breath of fresh air is actually longer, even though I'm not particularly afraid of walking outside right now without a face shield on. Um, my I'm breath of fresh, so outside, of fresh air outside is just, it's bigger. It's I'm thinking of things that are starting to just gel a little differently in my mind. In my experience, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And that's why I'm excited about chaos. I think that there's something to this that is really worth embracing. 
Oh, I think we should have a podcast called Excited by Chaos. Um, well, you know, this is, um, you know, basically once one reads a, a poem, then one should actually just uh, tip their hat and leave the room. But I think that it would be fun to talk about at length at some point, the fact that what is what holds true for the human body and its adjustment to its its um, environment is also true of what we might call the, pro, you know, human history. Um the, you know, we are, you know, history is full of examples of, you know, dreadful things leading to great change. Um, and because I'm a historian, I can no longer say that's a good change or a bad change, you know, but, but because one of the things that I work on a lot, for example, like the Protestant Reformation, there's a, there's a theory of religious reform that comes from the experience of, of um, the Black Death. Um, and that's a, it's a very, very, um, persuasive thesis about, you know, what people end up doing, how their thoughts must change, how they must actually throw away old paradigms when those things no longer give comfort and they don't provide enough um, flexibility to handle uh, events out of people's control. And that's interesting to think about because in the early modern period or in the medieval, in you know, in, in the medieval era, it takes a lot for for people to feel completely out of control because it's already, there's already, I think a, a great mindset that there is not a, a lot of control to be, to be had in the world. You know, Kings are autocrats, um, uh, crops fail. Um, there's not a lot there to really depend on. So it takes something really big to shake it up. But um, in thinking through this, I would agree with you. I think um, it's not, and I think it's not, um, I, I think it's not a sin to uh, say, I think one of the really uh, interesting things about being alive right now is like these extraordinary TikTok videos that I get, or <laughs> this, this, I had a student say this today in a, in a town hall. He's, he said something like, I'm amazed at watching the kind of the resilience of American humor. I mean, how people actually end up making, you know, like, you know, funny songs and, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they, we're trying so so much, whether we're, you know, practice like, you know, Heather McHugh, the poet, or whether we're just us, we, we're also trying to surprise and delight each other. We're actually trying to, um, you know, make this a time where you don't just notice the flowers or the air, although I, I appreciate what you just said, you know, it's, it's, it is, things do seem brighter uh, in that way, more, more sort of available to the senses, uh, but also that we're more aware of each other and that we that we have this kind of a moment, you know, where we, we actually realize that, you know, I think, you know, part of what we are are just ludic people that like to amuse each other. Um, this has brought out some really sort of amazing moments um, of what we call homespun creativity. Um, I didn't have much appreciation for that aspect of the Internet until now. Um, I'm, you know, as you know, personally, because you're my friend, you have received far too many videos and things from me lately. <laughs> And you know, moons and stuff, you know, that kind of thing. I would never like, I would have never sent you something like a cat playing the piano. What do I care? But, you know, um, but right now I'm just kind of thinking, wow, I can't believe that whole family got together and, and did this great sort of parody of Les Miserables, right? Um, yeah, which or, is quite know, funny. I do enjoy that, that one. Yeah. Yeah. The boy with the pizza box at the end is the best, right? And that, so then, yes. think about that. I mean, from, from the sublime to the ridiculous, you know, sublime being a word that I think doesn't always have to mean good, just sublime, just like it knocks you out like this is doing right now. The sublime, it's not just that you go from the sublime to the ridiculous in a kind of a, in kind of an arc, the sublime brings out the ridiculous, right? Like, you know, we have to, we, we have to break the tension or you know what, or we make people laugh and laughter makes you have to take a big, deep breath. It is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. And, and all of these things are examples of sharing air. I mean, this is, this is how we bond as humans. And this, the you know, air is this medium that we, we have, that we share with each other. And it can be direct or it can be indirect. And it's always there. It's always constantly a, a need of ours, even in times of isolation. And, and then we have this other irony to go along with it that we have a fear of this air because this is the thing that is carrying uh, a possible disease with it. And so to be able to live in that that discomforting space is is a challenge, but it's doable. And 
when we do think through the things that are important, the things that are that are healthy for us, our capacity to critically think through the information we're given, and the ability to, to appreciate and to love and to show care for each other, it's all part of the same recipe. These things aren't actually isolatable from each other, even though we are isolated from each other. And I think that is what I hope that I can take with me from this experience and keep thinking about what is it like for me to share air better tomorrow than I did today. And that, that would really make me, uh, that would put me on a path that I think would, would, would really help me come out on the other side of somebody who's had great gratitude for this period of time. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's, you know, uh, yeah, sharing air it's funny you, you and I actually like let's let's take this out let's let's spin it out to all, to its meanings you know we you and I have shared the airwaves today we're watching them on this screen which is kind of amazing to me when I talk and I watch these little things bump up and down um, but we haven't really right so I have the I've been having the intense pleasure of like talking with you and I know your voice. Um, and I know we're both talking because I, you know, I can see this um, and we have very different voice uh, patterns, you can see as well, um, which is kind of cool, which means that we are actually moving the air around us, but we're in two separate places. Uh, so we're both sharing the air and we're not. And um, I was listening to, a, they were, you know, as one of the 5,000 interviews or 6 million op-eds I read in the last, you know, five and a half hours, um, there was a this... Um, one of the doctors was saying, don't you understand that? I mean, every day in, in regular life, we basically just cover each other in, um, in each other's breath, cover each other in each other's spittle. We just, that's just the way we work as human beings. We live sharing that. Um, and instead, um, I, you know, I'm here doing, you know, I'm sharing this with my screen um, and it will be really nice I'm really looking forward to continuing the, doing these podcasts with you and bringing in people and, you know, because I, I learn so much from you, Andy, every time. But one of the things that I can say is that, um, you know, at some point it would be tremendous fun and it will be wonderful again to be actually sharing air, sitting across from each other at a table. Yeah, I, I very much look forward to that, too. Um, but I, I also argue from the physiological component that. Um, we still are indirectly, you have speakers that are vibrating in your ears that are actually moving the air so that you can hear me. This isn't just sensory neural hearing. This is actually uh, an acoustic kind of hearing. We're not vibrating the temporal bone. So you are getting air. You're just getting it transduced through a bunch of other media. It's not quite, it's not my air anymore. It's just, I'm affecting your air through the earphones. But that was a very nerdy thing that I didn't really have to say, but I felt it was, it was, it was. But that's why I like you so much. I like those nerdy things. You reminded me that I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it next week because it'll be more appropriate. But you have to remind me to tell you um, the uh, a story I have as a person who was forced to go to an Easter service um, with my mother and what I saw when they did the children's sermon. Just remind me of that. Okay, remind okay. me that I'm going to tell you this. Like, it, so, air. it is absolutely perfect. So we will cover that next week. And what else do we have coming up next week, Lorianne? Oh my goodness. Well, and, and in between, I want everybody to get onto Patrick Stewart's um, uh, uh, Instagram. I think he's up to Sonnet 15 today. Um, and just for those of you who are Shakespeare nerds, he refused to read Sonnet 5 because he said he didn't, he has never understood, he never understood it. And if the mighty Patrick Stewart doesn't understand something, it makes me absolutely curious about Sonnet 5. So I've been reading it forever. Um, but next week, we're going to actually have Tammy Schneider, uh, who is a professor of Hebrew Bible and of religion at um, Claremont Graduate University. She has a lot of very interesting things to talk about in terms of um, the, the, um, the, the notion in Hebrew, the notion in the, in the Old Testament, the notion in, in a book like Genesis of what breath means and life. Um, and what that might mean about spirit and what it might mean about relationships to the divine, which is why I'm going to, I want to start this by, by telling my silly church story. But um, I would definitely say tune in because um, those of you that know Tammy already know that she is very good value on a podcast. And if you don't, you need to meet her. Um, she will uh, provide a very lively presence. Um, so that's what we'll have for next week. Great. And so as you made a recommendation, my recommendation is to follow the Twitter feed of, of a physicist named Yanir Baryam, who 
is a complex systems guy who makes total sense of how complexity and uncertainty and chaos relate to our, our current situation. And he's very pragmatic about the way that we can all act in our best interest and what kind of measures should be taken to help us navigate this uncertain time. So I, I found that he's, he's very articulate and it's very easy to, to follow what he's saying. I'm very much looking forward to our next show together and discussing um, on air uh, more about how we share and how this is affecting our relationships and how we can stay connected during this time. And I think we should have, we should throw out the first a sharing air challenge, which is that everybody who actually takes both of our recommendations writes us and tells us how you can connect this kind of theorist that Andy's talking about with Shakespeare as a sonneteer. I like that. It idea. can be done. It okay. can be done. You can put these together. You're on. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>